episode is coming to you from northwestern Montana, which is where my husband, my dog and I have landed after spending eight adventure-filled days road tripping from our former home in New York City. Along the route, we visited the Indiana Dunes on the shore of Lake Michigan. Still blows my mind that it's a lake and not the ocean. Badlands National Park and very cheesy, very touristy Mount Rushmore. After all that traveling, it felt amazing to unpack and find a base here in Big Sky Country. Our cabin is on the lake with a mountain backdrop. We can spot hummingbirds, deer and bald eagles right off the deck. It is really something. But anyway, on with the show. My guest, Sarah Dusick, is the co-founder of Under Canvas, the massively popular safari-style glamping company with locations just minutes from America's most iconic national parks. After turning Under Canvas into an Inc. 5000 company, Sarah set her sights on backing women-led businesses in South Africa with her private investment fund, Enigma Ventures. Both of Sarah's companies were influenced by a trip to Zimbabwe in 1999. Sarah had just graduated and was taking six months to volunteer with a local organization during the AIDS crisis. It was tough work, but she fell in love with the country's beautiful landscapes and strong community values. Zimbabwe brought out the activist in Sarah and shaped her belief that changing the world starts with uplifting women. In this episode, we discuss her passion for championing the underdog, the beauty of living and working in a place that's nothing like home, and being a lifelong voyager. Welcome. So good to speak to you. I'm super excited because I am a massive fan of Under Canvas. Mm, Excellent. (laughs) I stayed at the Zion location and also the Great Smoky Mountains in the last couple of years and I've got my eye on a few of the other ones. So yeah, I'm a big fan. It's a super cool company. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. And I actually right now am in Montana. Are you really? Well, there's a small world. (laughs) yeah the downside is that my internet connection kind of goes in and out because we're pretty rural so if I if I do disappear I will be back but it's so beautiful out here how long did you live in Montana for for just over 10 years actually and we still have a home our home base is in Montana still so uh, it's it's home my kids are Montanans through and through amazing and whereabouts did you live we have a house just outside of Bozeman Oh, Bozeman is so nice. We went through there only briefly, but I think we're going to stop on, on our way to Wyoming this weekend. It's a great little ski town. It's a it's a really, really great little town. And that was where you opened the first Uncanvas, right? Yes, our headquarters, our offices are still in Bozeman and actually very near the airport. And uh, Yellowstone Under Canvas was our first Under Canvas camp. So, yeah, just down the road. It's amazing. I mean, I'm, we're going to get to all of that. So I guess I should start at the very beginning. I like to ask people, where did your love of travel originate? I don't know. My kids, we, we often joke about this because I, I say to my kids, kids, we are voyagers. That's who we are. We are the people who like to go beyond the reef, as Moana would say. Oh, I, and <laughs> I don't know where it came from. It is such a bizarre thing because um, I wouldn't have said my my family were hugely adventurous or, or, or big into travel. Um, I, I didn't travel wildly as a kid. I didn't make my first plane trip till I was about 14. I obviously grew up in the UK. We flew to Florida when I was 14 and that was like an exotic adventure. So um, did you go to Disneyland? We did. Yes. So it must have happened in my, in my later teens and in my early twenties, just this yearning yearning for the beyond and yearning for for the unexplored and the unknown and places I've never been so I don't know where that came from but it's certainly it's certainly in me (laughs) and uh, we certainly still continue to love to go where we've never been before and to explore and yeah experience new places and new peoples and I know that you studied law at university I feel like people who pick law there's usually some story behind that choice like you know their parents were lawyers or you know they watched too much Ally Mobile when they grew up or something along those lines I watched too much LA law that's Uh, what I watched but I certainly um I only just realized this sort of relatively recently and I think my legal other than LA law 
which was definitely a factor. Um, <laughs> but I, I think what what was part of me and is still very much part of me is this idea of fighting for the underdog and against injustice and helping the little person. And I think all of that was stirred up for me. Just this idea of justice was a really big it and still is a big concept in my life. If we just talk about it in terms of concepts rather than, you know, the actual the work that, that lawyers tend to do. And I think that was what inspired me to become a lawyer. And I'm very glad I have not practiced law. <laughs> but I my legal training comes in handy every day of my working life. And still, I think just connects to that inner zeal and, and desire that I have for the underdog or the marginalized or the, the non-majority person or peoples that still sort of gets me out of bed every day, even now. So this the desire to champion the underdog, can you pinpoint where that came from? Oh, you're asking hard questions, Esme. <laughs> it's turning into a, some sort of therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Great question, really. I think it probably comes from my faith. I have a really strong, vibrant faith that really and um, probably does und- undergird everything in my life uh, and everything that I care about. And it probably comes from, from, from my faith and, and the desire to make the world a better place, a more equal place, and to be part of that. So I, I think that's probably where it comes from. Yeah. Mm. So while you were doing your studies, you, were, you realized that law was not for you. But you still, as you say, wanted to champion the underdog and had a passion for for helping people. So how did you then reroute and decide what the next step was? Yeah, well, it really connects to the trip that changed me in the sense that um, post-university, I was planning to take a break between sort of university and taking my first sort of real world job. I, I can't quite remember all the circumstances circumstances that came about that led to this but I I ended up going to work for for six months uh, for a non-profit organization in Zimbabwe I had a friend at university a dear friend he's he's still a very dear friend who was from Zimbabwe and I had visited her for a very short brief amount of time during sort of one of our summer breaks from university and I just had this strong sense of while I was there uh, that I was supposed to come back and come and give back and come and serve for a sort of a six-month period post-university. So that's what I had planned to do, really, is, is head out into the big wide world, head off to Africa, much to my mother's distress. Um, <laughs> she was like, you are going to be um, a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, we're planning. This is, this is not the trajectory we were planning on. And I headed off to, um, to Zimbabwe and I ended up spending almost two years, not six months, but almost two years wow. uh, working with young people and doing schools and education work and AIDS education programs and just fell in love with Africa. It was an amazing time. I have a question because I know that volunteering abroad, specifically in Africa, and Asia can be a tricky thing in terms of finding a reputable organization. How did you go about tracking down an NGO that you were happy to partner with and that you felt like the projects that they were working on were worthy and really making a difference? Yeah, I ended up working for an organization that was entirely locally run, which meant it wasn't expat uh, outside most of the people working in the organization, about 99.9% of people in the working organization were not white. Um, they were local Zimbabweans, you know, working on solving their own problems through their own local strategies. Um, so that for me actually was really significant and really important. That's not to say that the reverse can't also be true, but for me, the idea of working alongside others and not coming in as, as the white hero was really critical and actually you know when you when you come to volunteer you come to serve right you don't come to uh, dictate uh, about how things are better elsewhere and how they should be done here and really for me it was it was an extraordinary learning time um learning about you know just I know that it's 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 simple but yet so complex in the sense that I think if we if we're born in a 
uh, affluent nation um, and have the skin color that I have, it's easy to think that we have all the answers to the world's problems. Uh, and the reality is we don't because we'd have fixed it all if we did already. <laughs> <laughs> and the ability to learn from others uh, who you know, don't necessarily think the same way, don't necessarily have the same worldview, don't necessarily have had to have the same experiences that I had had was really invaluable for me as a human being. And I think in terms of solving and addressing local needs and being able to be part of that was really uh, changed my life in amazing ways. And so I, I probably learned more than I contributed, <laughs> for sure, <laughs> which is often the case when you volunteer to do anything. But I think it also transformed my perspective on sort of global social economic issues and the way in which we interact with each other and the way in which we think about development, the ways in which we think about what, what being advanced actually looks like. You know, there, there's some amazing, the reality is that, you know, Africans have an, you know, because they're, they're tribal, the family system works so very differently than in, uh, in a western community and so there's so much to be learned from the importance of community and the importance of extended family and how you treat your elders and how you look after children it just looks very different and so I think all of that is is fascinating when you get up and up close and personal with people that don't look like you sound like you but yet want to embrace you into their world and and have you walk alongside them doing what they're doing? Mm. It sounds like you really know what you're talking about. And even back then, despite being pretty young, because you were just out of university, you had obviously done a lot of research and knew a lot about this stuff, uh, which is impressive, to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know that I knew a lot then. Well, even just uh, the fact I... that, you, that you were so careful about choosing the organization and that you understood you know, the white savior complex and that all of the complexities around being a Western person and going over to Africa to, to do these volunteer programs. A lot of young people do these and, and have no idea about that stuff. So even the fact that you were aware is, is really great. Awareness is the beginning of everything, mm -hmm. I think. <laughs> and, and even now I would definitely say I'm definitely not aware of everything I should be aware of. <laughs> you know, it's a constant journey, isn't it? And I think that's, that's the beauty of living and working cross-culturally and in and in a society that isn't predominantly of your own race or your own color or your own background you know even if that's just socioeconomically I think we have we all have a lot to learn from each other and, and that really inspires the work that I do today which is supporting and funding African women uh, on their entrepreneurial journey and just the importance in my own mind of it's it's really important that women sit at the table and really important that women are empowered economically, not just to, to make a difference to their own families, but to make a difference to their own communities, their cities and their nations. Um, mm -hmm. And so yeah, that, that drives me even now. We're definitely going to talk more about your new organisation soon. But before that, I'd love to talk more about this, this trip that changed you. So I imagine you're going for six months. You must have had some expectations ahead of this. What did you imagine that daily life was going to be like? And then how did it compare to the reality when you first arrived? Well, I did not imagine. I had not wrapped my head around what, what would happen when I first arrived. And I think part of being young and naive is you, and you don't have many boxes for things. I don't know that I'd ever really contemplated the idea that, that people lived in homes that were not like mine. <laughs> And so my first week in Africa was a huge shock. It was in January, so it was rainy season um, in Zimbabwe at, at that time of the year. And it was hot and wet. And the whole organization that I worked with had their annual conference. So all the workers from all over the entire country came together at this sort of large scale retreat, which the, the, the organization that I worked for owned. And this, the accommodation for us all to stay in was mud huts. In the rainy I was season. Not uh, in rainy season. I was not prepared for mud huts in rainy season. And I was also not prepared for eating uh, what in Zimbabwe is called sadza. In South Africa, it's called pup. But it's like the staple diet of most Africans, which is a milli, starchy, milli meal, um, porridgey slash polenta type um, mm -hmm. dish. 
that you generally eat with stew and you eat it as porridge for breakfast and stew the rest of the time. And, I, and so I wasn't prepared for my diet to completely be different than, than I was used to either. And so three meals a day of pup was pretty intense and pretty stressful. And I think for the first day or so, I think they all thought it was quite funny and didn't give us any silverware. And so you eat with your hands. And I wasn't prepared for that either. And of course, it's really hot. And, pathetic white hand we're not used to eating with my finger it was it was it, there were there were tears let's just say <laughs> tears. there were tears and there was when can I go home and can I get a plane ticket rerouted so that I can get out of here <laughs> oh no <laughs> it was just like this is all a bit too much this is this is a bit too much beyond my comfort zone was here and this is like so far outside of this it, it was a lot but uh, certainly I can look back on it now and and laugh and uh, I survived that week and stayed two more years so it can't have been that bad <laughs> yeah so that you had your kind of introduction and in your training and then you moved in with your host family mm-hmm. who were your host family and how did your relationship develop how did you build on that because I imagine moving in with people that you've you've never met before and you're like okay I'm gonna live with them for six months maybe longer you know you want to make sure you get along so yeah how was that experience I moved in with an amazing African family uh, um, a mother and three children she had one six-year-old I think and then two older teenage boys and I we loved each other I'm still in touch with them we still talk frequently their her children are all grown up now and are around the world have their own children and she was an amazing mother figure to me I still call her my African mommy Um, I moved into their home and didn't just didn't just share a room and became part of their family which was really really extraordinary they were amazing are amazing are an amazing family oh that's so that's so lovely that you had that experience And it was incredible because they made enormous sacrifices to me, for me. Um, They had, their house was not really big enough for me to move into. And so they, the boys ended up having to share and their youngest daughter um, ended up moving in with her mom and sharing a bed with her mom for the next six months so that I could have my own room and have my own space. So they made huge sacrifices. Uh, to have me in their home um, and to share their lives with me. And um, they certainly they certainly rubbed off on me and uh, I think I rubbed off on them too. What was it like for the children to have this strange white lady move into their house that they didn't know and, and to have to move around like that and sleep in different rooms? I think I was definitely a shock. I don't know that they were, I don't know, they were super excited about my arrival. <laughs> <laughs> Especially uh, the the teenage boys, uh, we can all imagine teenage boys at the best of times mm-hmm. uh, were not wildly excited about this sort of twenty something young white woman moving in in their house with and sharing one bathroom with all of us. You know, it was a lot. But uh, to this day, they call me their big sister. I call them my younger brothers, and um, they they made fun of me a lot in the early days, but. Uh, we became like siblings to each other for sure. Oh, that's so amazing. And I think, you know, six months, I know you ended up staying longer than six months, but it's the sort of the amount of time that you can get to know a place on a deeper level and to form these relationships. What were some of the most meaningful experiences that you had in Zimbabwe? I think that's what I really love about extended travel as opposed to making a 10-day, two-week trip or, you know, even a three or four-day trip somewhere. You just get really immersed in a place uh, in completely different ways than when you're a tourist. And I think, you know, this ability to really understand people, understand what drives a community, understand um, different cultures in, in, a, in a different way. And for me, even things like the safari experience, I fell in love with the bush in ways that I had not experienced the outdoors before in that way. And so that certainly, it created passion where there was no passion before. It really sort of opened my eyes to sort of 
wild places and wilderness and wildlife and the importance of conservation. And it was really an education for me in so many ways. And, you know, there's, there's no better experience in my mind than the African safari experience. It truly is really, really magical. Um, and it just connects you with the earth and with nature in such a beautiful, beautiful way. So, that, yeah, I, I, I had so many wonderful experiences out in the bush with friends and um, just experiencing the wild, beautiful place that Africa is. It was a really, really informative time. Oh, yeah, I like the way that you use the word educational. I also think that, you know, spending time in places that are so different from, from what we're used to at home it helps us to understand ourselves better being in another context, like seeing how other societies organize themselves and what you know other communities value. It sheds a different light on you and, and how you function within your own community and your own society. Did you have any kind of revelations like that while you were there? Yeah, I mean, I think even just, just going back to sort of that, the experience out in the bush, it, it made me, it definitely made me realize some of the things that I do value. Um, and it and it certainly also made me care about things that I hadn't even thought to necessarily value. So, yeah, I I think it definitely taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about the things I cared about. It it stirred up passions within me that I didn't even know I had, and you know created I think an ongoing yearning also to travel. I think I think that that experience and experiencing new places and being immersed in other cultures really sort of stirred that fire for me to explore more which yeah stoked a fire that my mother would rather it hadn't have been stoked <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely you know something in this the fact that you were so immersed in the community there as well like even your experiences i'm sure that you had on safari were entirely different to the experience that most people have on safari when they, you know, book with a big tour agent and then go, go over to Kenya or Namibia or wherever. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting how seeing, seeing a place through the eyes of the people who live there completely changes your understanding of the place as well. Like when, to use an example from my own travels, I went to Cuba a few years ago and I went with the Cuban Yoga Association. I'm very into wellnessy things. Um, and uh, I was writing about um, yoga there and staying at a retreat center. And I spent loads of time with the Cubans. And I really got to see how just daily life there takes so much patience. There's so much frustration. Nothing runs on time. Things break down. But they, they have this saying, which is, it's no es facil, which means it's not easy. And they say it with kind of a roll of their eyes and they let the frustration just roll off of them. And yeah. the way that they handle this with so much grace and humor compared to how we would handle it in the UK or in America, <laughs> where even the smallest inconvenience is a huge deal. I was like, this is an entirely different way of, of moving through the world. And it really made me think about how I approach stuff in my own life. Yeah, absolutely. I can so relate to that. Zimbabweans, we, we have a joke, I have a joke even now that we call it, we have to go into the Zim queue mode because in Zimbabwe you had to queue for everything. <laughs> and so you had to learn how to be really patient with queuing and or being in a line in the US and, and just this sense of, I just need to find my inner peace, be patient, you know, as opposed to this aggravated, incensed person who's, you know, not used to waiting for anything, just this ability to wait, wait your turn, uh, everything for it to take its time. You know, nothing happens quickly in Zimbabwe. So, you know, everything works on Africa time. So, you you know, you just had to had to learn, you know, and, and the other things, Zimbabweans are incredibly brilliant at making a plan um, for when things are not going right. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no fuel or there's no food on the shelves. Zimbabweans will make a plan. They don't moan. They don't complain, certainly not outwardly. And they just get on with it and they make a plan as to how they're going to tackle this challenge, which is, you know, constant daily life it's not it's not that it's 
you know, not it's unusual. We make a plan occasionally. We make a plan almost every other day um, for how we're going to function. And so, yeah, it's it's the differences of what normal looks like and how people adapt to addressing how they contend and how they move through the world. Yeah, I love that expression. It's it's how we how we how we walk our path, isn't it? And and how we navigate ourselves. Mm, yeah, it takes a little more resilience, I guess, in some places, and that probably makes people just better. I think it just makes you a better person to have a bit more resilience and a bit more patience. I think it creates a richness, richness that we don't have when we grow up with everything being handed to us on a platter and instantly. And you know, yeah. and technology is terrible for that in terms of everything's instant. You can buy everything at the push of a button, you can, you know, can make something happen. You can, you know, we're an instant society. Societies that aren't <laughs> um have still have a lot to teach us, I think. Yeah, agreed. And tell me a bit more about what you were doing with the with the NGO out there. I did AIDS education, well, I taught AIDS education programs, health programs in schools. I was a schools worker. And then I moved on to train becoming a trainer of trainers for other local Africans. I would train people how to to, to train others in these programs. Um, so AIDS, AIDS education really uh, was the focus of my work. And that this, what year was this? Was this when AIDS was was a really bad issue? An epidemic? Um, the end of, I mean, still a really bad issue in Africa. Nineteen ninety nine. So just over twenty years ago, twenty one years, twenty two years ago. Were there were there times when you found it emotionally difficult to handle? I don't know that I'd ever experienced death in quite the same way that Africans had been experiencing you know, death of extended, you know, a bit like we've all had to learn how to navigate experiencing death on a massive scale this last year with the pandemic. I think for the first time in Zimbabwe, I was seeing people die, young young people die of a disease that I, you know, really didn't have much context for. Um, and death became much more of a, it made me much more aware of it I think um in the same way that you know we've had to wake up with COVID-19 you know it's been in our face a whole lot more um and you know you know you would you would go to one community or one town or one village and you know work on your program and you'd come back in a few months later and you'd say oh where's so-and-so where's so-and-so like oh he died or oh she died or I had a I lived in a, a when I moved out um after living with the, my host family for six months and I had my own my own little house, the compound in where I live, our gardener died of AIDS within the time that I was there. And it struck me the value of life and the fragility of life struck me in, in completely new ways that I was very much unprepared for and had not really wrapped my brain around and you know, the average life of a, a Zimbabweans, I think now is about something like 42 or something. Oh, I mean, it's, wow. it's wildly different than the US or the UK. So, you know, life expectancy is very different. You know, even now I, I've known you know, several, you know, many friends prior to sort of this COVID era who are gone from my, you know, who, who have died. Uh, over the last 20 years who were young who were my age my you know um some you know some from AIDS some from cancer things that should have been able to be treated but not treated um and you know expensive complicated surgeries just not happening so just a very different very different world and very different you know challenges than 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 most people like you or me would normally encounter yeah, that's so tough. That's so tough. And did you feel that you were really making a difference while you were there, or did were there moments when you? <laughs> no, I never. I never really felt like um, um, we, I, I really contributed anything. And and in some ways, not feeling like we were able to make much of a difference with the work that we were doing really also informed 
my transition into, into business because I spent uh, in total almost eight years working for different NGOs, first in Africa and then later in the Far East. And I got very disillusioned and very burned out with trying to save the world and really not making not feeling like we're not making enough progress we're not we're not moving fast enough we're not driving change in a way that I think is reasonable or should be expected and I think what I came the conclusion I came to was that I don't know that the aid vehicle is the right vehicle for driving change it's the right vehicle for bandaging right it's the right vehicle for propping things up and trying to make lives lives better in the immediate particularly in emergency situations, but they're not necessarily um, the right vehicle for solving systemic problems. Um, And that really drove me into my own business journey with realizing that the the vehicle that drives innovation and drives change and moves forward uh, is is the business vehicle, um, which really prompted my own foray into business and and discovering is can we use business as a tool for doing good and can is the vehicle of innovation which is which is what businesses are they are innovations and they're they're designed to solve problems and they're sustainable because they ideally make money um is that a better vehicle for trying to move move the world forward and solve some of the world's biggest issues which really created a huge sort of shift in my own thinking um, and in my own work. My God, Sarah. I mean, I feel changed by your trip. <laughs> Just hearing about it. <laughs> Happened in one, two year stint. I will say that. <laughs> it sounds like it was so profound and so eye-opening for you. So when you when you came home after this these two years, it sounds like so much had changed in your mind and you had a completely different plan for how you wanted your life to look. How, yes. um, how how did that move? And we've we've touched on business stuff, but how did that translate to to you then going starting your own business? It translated, I guess, as all good things. Sometimes when you come to the end of yourself, and when you come to to the end of your, you know, you hit a wall of the end of a particular journey. I I had a bit of a crisis point, I guess, not really a crisis of faith, but a, a crisis of trying to make sense of the world and my place in it. And I, I'd lived in three different countries over an eight-year period. I had traveled to probably almost 20 countries in that time. And my my resolve and my desire to be um, active in making a difference or feeling like I'm making a difference in the world was really sort of my my big driver that didn't really change. I think my perspective on how I might contribute to doing that did change. Um, meeting my husband, I met my husband in my in my last overseas position, and I think the combination of of joining force, joining my life with him, changed and sort of going hitting a bit of a wall and going back to the drawing board and going, okay, what next? What does this next season of my life look like? Really started us on a on a on a new journey. Let's touch on under canvas first for a minute. You're obviously British. Is he American? He's American from Montana. Yes. Okay. So then somehow you guys, you moved to Montana. We did. And how did you come up with the idea for under canvas? We, my husband's family are farmers and ranchers uh, along the north east, well, sort of north central part of Montana. Um, and my husband had this big grand idea that we would raise our children uh, out in the wilds um, <laughs> on, a, on a farm where he had grown up. And so we moved, uh, well, young, oh, my oldest son uh, was six months old when we moved back to Montana. And we really didn't really have any clarity around what we would do other than that we would try and earn a living off the land and that we would try and recreate a life, a life for ourselves um, that he wanted to give our our children and when I got to the farm bearing in mind I did not grow up on a on a farm um, <laughs> I had grown up in suburbia in middle class England and um, but when I 
arrived in Montana, it just struck me so much how much similarity there was sort of the big wide open spaces of Africa, the big vast sort of savannas of space that had so struck me um, when I was in Africa. And the combination of experiencing again, huge wide open spaces in Montana, it just made me think, gosh, I wonder if we could recreate the safari experience here. I wonder, it was nothing really like it at the time. Glamping didn't really exist in the US. I think there was maybe one other company that was doing something vaguely like it. Certainly wasn't mainstream. There was a little bit of it in Europe. Europe was a bit further ahead in the, the glamping idea, but it really just struck us. It's like, could we, could that one, that was the vision. Could we try and emulate and create an income off the land without destroying the land, preserving and protecting the land? and recreate um, the magical African uh, safari experience that I'd fallen in love with um, during my time in Zim. And so that was really sort of the nebulous idea. And we, we started to try and pioneer um, our first glamping location on, on my husband's family's farm. How did you go from the farm to opening up next to Yellowstone? Like when did the, the idea to open near all the national parks come to yeah. you? Um, we spent about two and a half years up on up, up on the prairie, um, and we just realised there was huge appetite and huge desire for our tents and the experience. There just wasn't a huge desire to travel to where we were. It's not really a tourist hotspot, and so we just made we finally made the link and thought, ah, oh, gosh, people are interested in the tents. People love the tents and they love the idea. They just they don't want to come here. So we then had to pivot and think, okay, how do we take the tents and the experience to the people rather than try and get the people to come to us? Um, and we made that shift um, in 2012 when we launched our first under canvas camp in Yellowstone. It was our anchor under canvas location. Is our anchor under canvas location. I'm about to go to Yellowstone in two weeks' time, so I'm super excited to see it. <laughs> but it's amazing how... Under Canvas now is just it basically owns glamping. I feel like everybody knows everybody knows Under Canvas. When I went to the Zion location, I had just checked in and I glanced across to where the kitchen area is in the big main tent, and I had to do a double take because I realised that my best friend, one of my best friends from Bristol, her parents were there, <laughs> and I was like, "What are you doing here?" And they were like, "What are you doing here?" I was like, "Well, oh. at least live in America. Like, <laughs> what, what do you do?" So it was such a nice surprise, but it made me realize how, how wow. popular it is. You know, it's amazing what you guys built. Yeah, yeah. it's been an amazing journey. I, I, and we certainly never imagined um, that it would become as popular as it's become or that we would be privileged enough to be the founders of a brand that has come to mean so much to so many people, um, guests and staff. So it's been a real, a real privilege and a real gift to us. Of course. So you sold under canvas, is that right? I sold a large share of under canvas. I'm still a shareholder of under canvas, just uh, a minority shareholder today. Uh, I still sit on the board of under canvas. So I'm still a passionate advocate uh, for all things under canvas. Um, <laughs> but in, yeah, in two years ago now, we, we um, transitioned again from our day-to-day -day roles at under canvas um, into our new roles running a venture capital firm. Yeah, so let's talk about Enigma Ventures. It sounds like there's a very clear through line to the Zimbabwe trip um, with this one. Yeah. So could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, we came back 20 years to the, almost to the month of when I arrived in Zimbabwe the first time. And uh, for us, that was a real full circle moment. Africa has been very good to us. Um, and we built a business, obviously, on the African safari experience. Um, and now back in Africa, we're based in Cape Town in South Africa. And we are pioneering the way for female entrepreneurs um, and trying to ensure that female entrepreneurs are empowered and funded and are given the opportunities to grow and scale their businesses that they can become you know, our future leaders and our future world changers. So that's the work we're involved in today, funding 
incredible African entrepreneurs and helping them grow and scale their businesses, just like I had the opportunity to do in the US of growing and scaling my own business. And why did you focus on women-led businesses? My own journey as a as a female founder in the US really, really inspired the underdog champion mentality. Not that women are underdogs in any way, but they are underfunded mm-hmm. in the US. I think statistic is something ridiculous, like only less than 2% of all funding that's allocated in the US goes to women-led businesses, which is really quite nuts. And so my own journey of, of raising capital I also found it exceptionally hard. Uh, it was a very arduous, difficult journey. And I just realized, you know, it really is a boys club and you have to have networked in the right ways. You have to be connected. You have to maybe become from the right social economic background or have gone to the right schools where you connect with the right folks. And so I, I realized, and I was not even American, I have become an American, um, but I just wasn't moving in the right social scene. I wasn't well connected. I didn't know the right lingo. You know, I hadn't come from a business background, come from a nonprofit background. So um, the experience, you know, of trying to build and scale a business was exceptionally hard. And now having done it uh, and built and sold a very successful, amazing company, my desire to help other women do the same thing and ensure they get funded I think was fueled by my own frustrations and my own pain and recognizing that I think for the the betterment of our world, we need need lots of different kinds of people to sit at the table because right now the world is run by, you know, a minuscule amount of the population of who have the the wealth and power to run our world. Um, And that world is run by white men. And I actually think we will create a better world for all of us, not just for women, but for men and women, if we've got a diverse set of people at the table who are controlling the world's wealth, who are building the world's big businesses, who are creating jobs, who are solving the problems of the future. And I think, you know, without other women stepping up to say we've got to change that because alone men are not able to then, you know, I think that's, that's why I'm in the ring. I find being an investor incredibly hard. Uh, having been an entrepreneur, it's, it's much more difficult to sit on the sidelines and champion than it is to get in there and do it yourself. But I think it's super important um, that other women are given the opportunity to do it and make it happen. So that is why I'm in the ring. Are there any companies that you have funded that you want to give a little shout out to? Oh, so many, so many. (laughs) But um, I've got one um, that's just launched in the US uh, this last, uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, So she definitely deserves a shout out. She was running a successful cosmetic, natural mineral cosmetics company in South Africa, built a great brand and a great company here. And we decided she could be well served by launching in the US. Mm. We just launched her her business, thegoodmineral.com. And she has a range of incredible natural mineral makeup products um, on her site. And she's launched her e-commerce platform just in the last few weeks and founded by two incredible sisters. Um, and one of whom is the CEO and running and driving the company and one of whom invented the product so they're an amazing pair um so they would definitely appreciate all your love and your sales um but that's so thegoodmineral.com i'm gonna have to look them up because i am in the market for some clean beauty some mineral beauty yes, that's what they are they're clean beauty and i'm a no makeup person mm-hmm. um and they are even i love them so i think if <laughs> i love them i'm not a makeup person they must be great Um, yeah clean clean mineral clean simple easy beauty is what they are amazing well Sarah it's been such a pleasure speaking with you your story has been just really it's just really moving and inspiring and like genuinely I know inspiring is an overused word but it genuinely is inspiring so yeah congratulations on everything you're doing where can people find you. you and your projects on the internet we are at enigmaventures.com and enigma because we're mysterious is spelt with a y instead of an i 
So it's E-N-Y-G-M-A, enigmaventures.com. And before you go, would you be interested in doing a quick fire round with me? Of course. My pleasure. Okay. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Going places where people don't look like you. Being in another culture. Good answer. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Uh, I'd go see my mom and dad. I'm oh, going to well. cry. Oh, we, we, we have- we haven't, um, since the lockdown of COVID, I haven't seen my family in almost two years. Oh, no. So, easy. <laughs> um, where, where do they live? They're both in the UK. Oh, and, where, and you're in South Africa now? I'm in Cape Town, yes. Yeah, in Cape Town, on the red list. So no one wants oh. us. <laughs> What's the one thing that you never travel without? I never go anywhere without my journal. So wherever, whether I'm going for anywhere, even overnight, my journal is with. Do you journal every day? I do. I do journal every day. I'm a, I'm a journal fanatic. I have almost probably 30 years worth of journals, probably. All right. You're ready to, to, write, your, <laughs> to write your memoirs soon. <laughs> All the material. <laughs> Um, what's a less touristy destination that you would recommend? Great question. I, um, if I think South Africa for a moment, I'm a little biased because I'm involved in this project, but um, there's a region that is completely unknown in South Africa and it's kind of called the Forgotten Mountains, but it's the South Pansberg region of South Africa. And there, there is more diversity in plants and flora and fauna in this one particular mountain range than the entire continent of Europe. It is what? extraordinary. That's mind-blowing. Yeah, it is mind-blowing. And it's got some of the world's biggest boabab trees, which are amazing. Oh, I love those. Uh, so not very touristy, but um, definitely worth a visit and definitely worth exploring in South Africa. That's a great tip. Um, what's been the most interesting food you've tasted while traveling? I love food. I'm a big food person. So um, I love experiencing all, all sorts of local delicacies and um, understanding what people eat on a day, not even delicacies, but things that people eat on a day-to-day basis. So I love local cuisine. Um, I don't know that I can pinpoint one thing. I'll try anything. I'm still still moving. (laughs) As long as you can have a knife and fork. (laughs) And silverware, please. Or chopsticks. Those are those. (laughs) What have you been most surprised to learn about yourself through traveling? I think I've learned um, how important it is for me and probably for many people to decompress and the space that travel creates often gives me my biggest breakthroughs so having the space to think and process and have ideas and be creative I don't think I had ever realized before you know, that that travel means so much creativity to me often we think of it as being sort of you know we take off time off work to put work aside um, and rest and actually I find my times of rest through travel on my most productive times ever. I do my best deals. I have my most creative ideas. Uh, I get more done effectively when I come back to the business or whatever I'm working on because I've had time out. Um, so I have learned if I'm stuck and if I, I need to get some perspective and, and have an opportunity to have to try and figure out what to do, do about something, that um, time out slash travel slash rest is really good for me could not agree more do you have a recommendation for something to watch or read on a long journey I loved reading Trevor Noah's book Born a Crime he's hilarious as we all know he is very funny and and he tells an incredible story of his childhood growing up in Soweto Um, and obviously his rise to, to fame in the US is extraordinary 
but he tells amazing stories of what it was like to grow up uh, in the world's largest township. His book, Born a Crime, I would highly recommend for, for understanding the complexities of, of interracial relationships and the complexities of South Africa even today. And finally, what's next on your bucket list? I have so much pent up <laughs> travel, travel desires right now. It's so painful being on a red list. I feel like I'm trapped in a cage. I mean, I love South Africa and we've traveled so much throughout South Africa over the last uh, 18 months. Um, but there is something about going beyond, as I said at the start of this interview, I'm a go beyond person. So um, I have so many places that I'm longing to go. I'm longing to go to the Seychelles. Mm. Um, I'm craving a little tropical island paradise. Uh, so that's on my bucket list. I'm longing to go back to the Dolomites in Italy. Um, I've got a hiking, hiking the Dolomites uh, on my bucket list. I'd love to do an amazing into Europe five-star train journey um that would be super exciting and totally different yeah those are maybe just three to kick us off <laughs> yeah <laughs> <It's more. laughs> that's perfect sarah thank you so much it's been a pleasure my pleasure thanks so much for having me it's been great fun thank you for listening to this week's episode i hope you liked it We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going. 